Well, it is another night. I did decide to skip a light night last night. It would have been five nights in a row that I had worked on this particular recording. So I decided to take a night off. This is going to be a big weekend. So you may not hear from me again for a couple more nights. But I think I will complete this section anyway. I'm reading from the Journal of Jungian Scholarly Studies, Volume 17, 2022. And it's an article by John G. Corlett, particularly interesting to me. It's a leadership framework derived from the ideas of C.G. Jung or Carl Jung. And his work has influenced great works, um, great um, psychological tests that have been used in business as well. And uh, I've helped many people quite, quite get along, actually, in the business realm. The Myers-Briggs is one of them that kind of has a trickle-down effect from Carl Jung's theory with 16 business personality types. So the first night I read the introduction, I also then, after that, read the literature review. That was about 20 minutes, three major sections, and uh, the leadership review leadership review is often one of the greatest components of an article like this because it brings you completely up to speed on the general studies in the area so that you can build upon it. And now that's where we're at, building upon it. Young points to a leadership framework. We read the first night on that, component one, an individual is called by an individual voice to embark on the journey of individuation, the development of personality. Component two, the individual embraces the work of individuation. And component three, which was the last thing I read a couple nights ago, the individual having achieved personality becomes a leader. And now component four to uh, clear out this particular section is the leader engages in wholeness-oriented leadership dynamics with one or more willing followers. So we'll turn to that now at this particular stage. The fourth component posits that the person who has become a leader by virtue of the process described above in components one through three would in all likelihood engage at some point in leadership defined by one theorist simply as exerting, quote, influence. The leadership might most likely take place in, collect in a collective setting, but it would also take place in the quiet of one-on-one -on -one relationship. The profound wholeness of the leader, their psychological maturity, would... It seems engender equality and matured mutuality and psychological maturity in leader follower relationships. The leadership dynamic overall would likely be biased toward achieving wholeness for the enterprise writ large, its people as well as its work. Now this is where I would diverge a little bit because we're talking about a process. This would be the fourth stage, the fourth component. But sometimes there are people who are quite able to teach and learn at the same time. And for those people, that is the best way to learn. And so um, if you see the potential in somebody to actually uh, mentor or lead, put materials in their hand to where they can and help them do that under your supervision. Um, components one through three might automatically begin to kick in as a person begins the activity um, because some people are more action-oriented than others. So I'll just throw that out there here at the beginning. In the personality case, remember we're studying two, the personality and the prestige. 
In the personality case, Jung wrote that the Redeemer personality lights, quote, a beacon of hope for others. He went on, quote, the great liberating deeds of world history have sprung from leading personalities. So seeming to hint at the leadership role of Jesus of Nazareth, Jung wrote, quote, in Christianity, there rose up a direct opponent to the Caesarean madness. Quite an interesting quote. In the prestige case, Jung wrote that because, quote, society as a whole needs the magically effective figure, it uses the will to power, unquote, motivating this individual and the willingness of the mass to submit in order to bring about, quote, the creation of personal prestige. Both the outstanding inv individual and the clan benefit from the bestowing of such prestige. Quote, the individual distinguishes himself by his deeds, the many by their renunciation of power. Young concluded by suggesting that personal prestige is, quote, a phenomenon in the utmost, of the utmost importance for the com comedy of nations. The term personal prestige appears in the part of the prestige case where two social forces converge. On the one hand stands a person already seen as embodying magical prestige and thus recognized as a leader. On the other hand stands a group of people willing to be led by a person who seems to promise the stuff of leadership. Out of the convergence, mysteriously engineered by an unspecified but beneficent force in society, comes a social contract that Jung labeled personal prestige. This contract benefited the clan as a whole with, com with competent public institutions and social harmony. The leader with the opportunity to, pro to propagate a wholeness born of individuation and the individual clan members with a sense of stability and direction. Young did not use the word leadership to describe this compact. To me, however, the mutual attraction between the prestigious chief, one who has achieved personality and come to be seen as a leader, and a set of followers exhibiting the will to submit to the in the mass, creates a psychological and political groundwork for a relationship that comes across very much as leadership. In a practical sense, personal prestige is discussed above, and leadership would seem to be virtually indistinguishable. So there's the section. I'll just make a couple comments. Again, the component four, the leader engages in wholeness-oriented leadership actions with one or more willing followers. And this is the last component of Young pointing to a leadership framework. Now again, he's studying two different cases. One of them is one that we might consider sometimes in Western society, uh, something more along our lines, kind of studying objectively leadership, and it's a prestige case, and the uh, rising of leaders who gain prestige in society. In this particular case, he kind of points to Jesus of Nazareth inadvertently uh, kind of throwing off the Caesarean rule, and that would be kind of the rule of the Roman Empire. There were some headquarters, not just in Jerusalem, but in Caesarea, Philippi. And um, so Jesus basically did stand against um, the authority of the era as a voice, at least. And uh, Christianity 
eventually over the next two or three cent uh, centuries actually did influence the Roman Empire to an amazing extent. So that's the prestige case, and we can track similar things like that through history, and Jung definitely has so far. The personal prestige um, uh, appears kind of in a different type of setting. Um, and what we're talking about here, uh, well, the personality case is what we're talking about first with uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Now the prestige case, I'm so sorry, the prestige case basically is the arising of somebody who gains clout, so to speak. And I think one of the easiest ways to remember this is that there are people who seem to be kind of naturally born leaders. Um, they're difficult to pick out sometimes in settings other than the Western world because a lot of times in pre-modern and even modern and post-modern societies um, around the world, there are uh, societies that are more society-minded. They're more community-oriented. They're more about um, what do we do as a whole rather than what do we do as individuals. So picking out natural-born leaders isn't quite as easy in those particular type of societies. We are basically a society that's geared around individuation, you know, chasing the American dream, um, going for the gusto, all those things. We have a lot of opportunities to emerge as leaders in our particular society, but this is not always the case everywhere else. But prestige grows as a person grows in wisdom over the years, what have you, winning battles, rites of passage, um, different types of things. But then there are some who are kind of recognized as having some sort of innate personal prestige. And I would argue that even Jesus of Nazareth was even in that kind of category if Jung would look back at his early life because in Luke chapter 2, Jesus is a young boy. He's 12 years old. He's old enough to be considered a young man. And he is talking with the religious leaders in Jerusalem for three days while his parents are on their way home. They turn around, they realize he's not with the huge entourage of people that they travel with. And so he go, they go back to Jerusalem to find him. He's about his father's business. Well, here you have a natural example of somebody who emerges with some kind of wisdom that's far above his time. And he's actually in dialogue, so to speak, with the religious leaders, and they're asking questions, he's asking questions, and they're talking about the great works of the Hebrew Bible, possibly the traditions of the Talmuds, or maybe even the intertestamental period. Who knows? That's one conversation I would have loved to have been a part of. But you have, in even in prestige cases, you have this idea of somebody who carries with them an air or an air of prestige but the other thing that is pointed out distinctly in this is that as that person emerges um, there's a willingness of the masses to follow the person so this is I think one of the true cement factors of leadership you know people can carry with them like for instance royalty but it's also in modern society the norm for people to rally behind that royal person to actually substantiate or to authenticate that person's role as leader over them. 
we're probably going to witness something like that soon in our greatest ally just right across the pond here in the United Kingdom. But it's uh, prestige. It's the same factor. It is um, someone who carries with them something that would cause people to possibly want to follow them. But on top of that, it's also the willingness of everyone to rally behind them. Now, years and years ago, centuries ago, some kings referred to this as a divine mandate. In other words, they felt like they were ordained or chosen by God to lead people, but nonetheless, this led to all kinds of wars and all types of things, especially in Europe. Unless people actually rallied behind that divine mandate and recognized the leader as somebody they wished to follow. So I think this helps us a little bit more with the differences between um, what we might consider the personality, the redeemer personality, that type of person who just rises to the surface, those type of cases that we're used to studying here in the West, those great leaders who just arise out of nowhere sometimes because we have opportunity for them to rise, versus the prestige case, which is more like a groundswell, if you want to call it something like that, of people who recognize a leader. This person may have royalty, this person may not. But all of a sudden, this person starts gaining prestige, and there's a willingness of the masses to follow. So it's a one-two punch with the prestige case. All right, so I think that's enough for tonight. I hope you have a good evening.